All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are. I'm sitting with Commissioner JJ Koch. Is that how you say it? That is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Commissioner, you're the commissioner of the second district of Dallas County. Is that correct? Right. That's right. Right. Okay. So it's not just the city of Dallas because the city of Dallas is quite enormous. Yep. Yep, it's a huge part of the county, but it's not the whole thing. There's uh, there's a lot of story to tell outside. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I live in Dallas County, for example, and I'm in Irving, so it's one of the suburbs. Uh, okay, well, first of all, thank you, Commissioner, for taking the time today. Um, I'd like to jump right in and start talking about how your office, and specifically the 2nd District, has been bearing the burden of the response to COVID-19. I mean, it's it's been so up and down and in and around that... A lot of the citizens here, a lot of us, the constituents, the voting public, we're really confused. We just don't know what to do. And a lot of people are reacting emotionally and getting really overcharged. So how do you guys maintain a voice of reason in the midst of all that? Yeah, it, it's not not particularly easy. So thank you for giving me an opportunity to, to talk to folks about that. Um, you know, any intellectual job, kind of first needs to get filtered through the emotions of things. I mean, if you're not good emotionally, if you don't have the emotional intelligence, um, even the smartest folks, we've seen it in so many instances, can end up making huge mistakes because um, that, that powerful IQ will end up justifying things that are emotionally gratifying to the individual. So, you know, being calm, being still, um, and, and knowing yourself where you are emotionally is really important uh, before you can access any of your kind of higher intelligence anymore. So I, I know that uh, my colleagues uh, have done a pretty good job of that. We all have a moments where we're getting upset about things, but uh, all the folks that are on the commissioner's court, I mean, I'm, I'm the lone Republican, but I'm always happy to um, encourage and congratulate people for, you know, when they're doing the basic blocking and tackling things, right? I think everyone has been at a good, solid emotional baseline where, you know, we're, we're making sure we're calm and still, and then trying to take in the facts as we can. Um, and that's really been the, the, the biggest problem, if you will. I mean, this is, even from the beginning, it's been you know, a fast-moving crisis. Um, there's been plenty of things that are really unclear. And um, the most important thing to do in situations where um, data is either fragmented or just not there at all is to proceed with caution and use best principles, use really good decision-making principles, kind of the, the doing the least harm, if you will. Uh, so you really have to study the situation well, first decide if anything should be done. You know, do you need more information? Do you need to wait? Is now the time to act? Uh, and then when you start getting those pieces of data, you know, being very cautious regarding, all right, if I choose this action, does this cut me off from other things to do in the future? Um, am I... Uh, doing this too soon? Am I doing it too late? Um, I think we've done a, a decent job of setting the framework of decision-making, but, um, you know, there has been some decisions that have been made that were a little off because we didn't have all the facts that we needed. Um, right. And that wasn't necessarily the fault of, you know, us. that was just the fact that the facts didn't exist yet. So for the most part, I think uh, everyone's kept a pretty calm head here in Dallas County and we're, we're just doing the best we can. That's good. Uh, what I've, what I've seen, what I've noticed to be, uh, gosh, I don't want to say the word true because it's such an absolute word, but what appears to be happening the most is the reactions that we see from just my peers, you know, the people that are not representing communities specifically are feeling like a majority of them anyway, from the voices that I can understand and hear, the ones that aren't screaming at the top of their lungs, you know, um, 
they're really upset and disappointed with how persistent this has been and uh, specifically how their representatives have been responding. And that's, I know that that isn't easy for you guys to hear. So how have you taken that data and really applied the principles that you were talking about into the decision-making process? Sure. Um, I mean, I get my butt kicked daily uh, via email. I mean, there's folks that don't want the masks and they want the masks. I mean, um, there's folks that we're not doing enough. We're doing too much. Um, this is a hoax. This is the greatest challenge that ever faced humanity. Hmm. So um, there's, and typically those voices, you know, are the loudest voices. You know, I, I and certainly at the beginning, I struggled when someone would just, you know, lay on five cents of criticism and tell me what to do. Um, you know, I became incumbent upon me to just, hey, we're going to respond with kindness. I'm going to, you know, tell them clearly, address those points that I am addressing and telling them where, you know, this is something I can't do or this is something we just, you know, don't have justified yet. And, you know, in doing that, um, it's, it's been it's been helpful because you just kind of get reps at having a little grace and, and understanding that people are really upset. Um, I think one of the biggest problems that I see with those folks that are kind of shouting the loudest is they're, they're wanting the grand gesture of grand solution. And that's just not how the world works. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the world works a step at a time, a brick at a time uh, for the most part. And uh, even when you see kind of those, you know, the grand breaking of the dam or, or the, you know, the, the big thing, there were so many small steps that went on in the background that you didn't pay attention to, that you just you saw the big pop. And you think that, you know, that that's how the world works. Right. Um, so, you know, and, and specifically with the type of things we're doing, I mean, it's not very sexy to say, hey, listen, everyone's got to wear a mask. Right. But as you incrementally get a larger percentage of the population wearing a mask in public places, you get a larger percentage of the people avoiding um, trips and doing things outside of their home that, that aren't necessarily like just absolutely essential. Uh, those small steps begin to chip away at you know the, the high numbers and you start to slowly see that decrease, um, you know, by up half a percent, two percent a day, um, and it can be extraordinarily tiring for someone who is watching the numbers every day. And essentially, you know, it's kind of like watching grass grow. You're never going to see the growth until you look away. Um, so, you know, that, that's another kind of piece of advice that I give to people. It's like, listen, you cannot control the you know where the case counts are going every day. Um, you know, if you really want to, you can pay attention to them every day, but you'd probably be better off looking at it on Monday and then looking at it again on the next Monday um, to get some better perspective on, you know, how things work over time. But I think we're all very emotional right now. We're interested in diving into the thing and, and we're looking at um, this crisis a lot of times, you know, right up against the elephant and we're yeah. not getting the whole picture. Yeah, that's good. You were talking about taking more or less a mental break from all the information that's available out there. And I know that I can speak to that because I've been really disconnected and I would almost even say disassociated with all the information that's available, even on social media. Uh, I learned that it was starting to infect me just mentally and spiritually, right? Like I was being drugged down and drawn out. So how do you as a commissioner, one of the only Republican among, what is it, five commissioners for the county? So it's four commissioners, one county judge. So it's a body of five. Yeah. Um, the judge is elected, you know, from the entirety of the county. But, um, the, you know, the judge position is 
not you know properly named like in Texas. You know, we have a railroad commission that deals with oil and gas. So I think, what does that have to do with railroads? Actually, <laughs> nothing. Um, same thing with the judge position. I mean, in, in some rural counties, that position actually carries a probate judge mm-hmm. duties, but uh, every county over a hundred thousand that drops away. And you know, so our county judge is really just the chief executive, but. As that body works, it's it's a vote of equals. Anyone can put anything on the agenda. Um, his executive duties extend a little bit further than ours, but uh, each of us kind of meet as a body legislatively, but we all actually have our own um, executive powers over our districts when it comes to the road and bridge district. So we actually, it's kind of weird. It's a, it's a hybrid deal. So we vote, and we vote on things that are called orders, which is something that would be kind of created by a court, but it's not really in order (laughs) so it's it's a it's a very strange anachronistic body but it works um hopefully (laughs) most of the time it does um but yeah so that's that's kind of just a brief on how that works well i mean it it appears to be working i mean the world is turning Uh, whether we agree or disagree with the decisions that are being made is irrelevant honestly i mean at this point it's just about i think everybody's in survival mode so our sentences our senses are heightened and I can't imagine what that's like being in the middle of all this mess every single day that you open the door to your office, right? But um, taking that mental break, how do you how do you separate yourself from even just five minutes at a time? How do you, sure. how do you take time for yourself? Sure, I, I think uh, I mean you start with when when the emotions. You know, when people are coming at you emotionally, the first thing to do is, is just work really hard on having some grace. I mean, mm. uh, that is a practice. That is not um, a um, limited store that you have. The more that you practice reacting with grace, and your first instinct is to kind of, um, you know, be forgiving of the individual for coming at you and stuff like that. Realize that a lot of this is emotion, a lot of this is fear, and that's why they're coming at you. Um, having the confidence that no, you're not as dumb as they're saying you are in that right. instance. Um, right. You know, and so that's a that's a practice. And I, and I will say that, like, you know, March, April, probably I was getting dragged down, but you know, now I'm in a place where you know I have reps that um, have a grace, and I, I think it's a lot easier now to do that. So um, that's kind of like at the situs, if you will, like at the conflict point. Um, mm. If you can kind of um, turn down the temperature there, you're not going to carry it you know, two hours later. So when I first see the email or I first get the call, um, if I'm dealing with it pretty well there, I know that I'm going to be able to deal with it uh, really well, you know, before I go to bed, if you will. So a lot of it is, is, in the, is being able to, to deal with it in the moment, which is not like the easiest thing, but, um, you know, I use a lot of techniques. I, I, I like, uh, headspace. So I like, I like to meditate and, um, you know, one great skill for meditation is being able to, witness emotional thoughts that cross your brain and as soon as i kind of witness that i've I've got some angry thoughts come along if i can channel those and and, you know deal with them and let let them pass if you will um they don't stick around they don't last until bedtime if you will so that's probably the biggest technique is just being able to realize what it is in the moment and not letting it grow from there but I, i will say that um, kind of the other thing that pops up, so dealing with folks' anger, but then you deal with just kind of the, the cumulative sadness. I mean, you get a lot of sad stories. I mean, there's a True. lot of um, there's a lot of constituent deals that I'm working on that are just super heartbreaking. I mean, you know, one and this is not disclosing any confidences or anything like that, but there was a girl that was just stuck between houses in in shelter in place. Um, 
one of those places was a place where she had a stepbrother that was sexually abusing her. Like, we needed to do something. And there was a lot of moving parts to get this thing figured out. And there was a lot of mental health things on her part um, to get her some inpatient help because she was having suicidal ideation, right? So, I mean, this was, you know, a really, really difficult and with me thing for a while. And I think the only way that you kind of not let that stuff start to um, really pull you down is, you know, to focus on what you can do today to chip away at people's pain and problems um, and make sure that you look back and reflect on, you know, the, the positive instances. So we got that case figured out. It took a while, but it happened. So That's good. When, when, when facing some of these other things, it's like, listen, it's going to be the same playbook. It may be, you know, I want this done today, maybe eight days, maybe two weeks, maybe a whole month. But every day I have something I can do to make this better for this person or a series of people. So, you know, taking that incremental, like, I just got to keep pushing, taking steps, um, and kind of being involved in that fight and working through it. And immediately, you, you start feeling that I'm doing something, I'm getting it done. It's not all happening at once, but it, I can do this. I can make things better. But it's first. happening. It's yeah. happening. Right. Yeah. Uh, Commissioner, I wanted you to know the reason I did that. Um, people can't see it. Your microphone's hitting your button on your shirt. So it's starting to, oh. yeah, it's starting oh, to distract from that. So, uh, oh, sorry, but it's okay. Not a big deal. I'm glad we caught it early. Um, so not only are you fielding big decisions for the county as well and working with, um, three Democratic commissioners and one, I think Judge Clay identifies as a Democrat, does he not? Yep. They're all yeah. Democrats. I'm the only Republican. Right. So that goes to speak to the kind of uh, constituency that we're all representing. You were showing me your map and it basically went from Highland Park out to near Louisville, the northern part of Irving, all the way across uh, on the right past Carrollton. Is that right? Yeah, well, yeah all the way out to Rowlett. So, I mean, you know, the, yeah. the whole top of the county from, from Rowlett to Coppell. Um, and then, you know, you kind of come down from the middle there into Preston Hollow and kind of those, you know, most uh, socioeconomic um, well-to-do areas that tend to vote Republican. So it is the packed Republican district. That's uh, one of those things about politics that, you know, good thing, bad thing. Um, I represent folks that, you know, have uh, a, a fair, you know, similar outlooks on things. So it's, it's easy in that respect to, to answer to them, if you will. Uh, but on the other hand, when it comes to kind of bigger problems that don't necessarily cross over socioeconomic lines. Um, a lot of the folks that I represent maybe are, are blind to some of the things that kind of need to get done to, to help everyone, to rise all boats, if you will. Um, so, you know, it's a good thing, bad thing. And the same type of thing happens when um, state houses draw their congressional seats or state houses, that when you pack a ton of like-minded people in the same place, you're for the representative, you're going to get an opportunity to kind of represent a uh, one point of view. The problem is that one point of view doesn't always fit in with what the times need. <laughs> so, right. you know, right. it, it sometimes it, it would be better to have um, not partisan drawn lines. So you um, can represent a broader constituency or a broader swath of need. Yeah. So in, in the response of COVID-19, it seemed like cities, counties, all the way up to state and federal level, responses were very, I want to say umbrella in that they were general and not really laws that were put into place. So can you talk about the difference between the initial response when we didn't know what the hell we were dealing with uh, and basically providing guidelines for cities to make their own decisions 
to now having executive orders by the national emergency manager, I think is uh, what Governor Abbott is. Is that correct? So, yeah, Nim um, Kidd is the, the emergency you know, response uh, head, but yeah, he answers to the governor. Right. So, so what's um, the difference between the, the initial response to today's response? Sure. Uh, well, for, I mean, throughout the whole thing, you've kind of had the general issues of federalism. Um, mm. You know, it's, it's, it is a positive thing in many respects to have um, 50 individual states that are 50 individuals, uh, 50 individual laboratories of democracy. You know, there's a lot of good that can come from being able to tailor things locally. When it comes to something like a, a COVID-19 response, having uh, a unified response in many respects, you know, is, it would be preferable, um, particularly when it comes to, you know, how we're going to move supplies around. So the federal government does a good job in its emergency management of, say, you know, getting ventilators where they need to go, um, spending, spending dollars to, to get vaccines started. Uh, but the federal government does a poor job, and necessarily so, of administering some of the you know, kind of baseline local health things. So you know, your hospital beds locally. Um, I don't want the federal government necessarily to be in the business of um, mandating how we're going to get hospital beds here mm. and there. I mean, I think locally we can handle those things. But um, this type of crisis, a pandemic like this, we haven't faced it since the Spanish flu. So unfortunately, um, a lot has changed since 1918. Of course. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with a different type of federalism and state government. You know, so 1918, you didn't have the types of programs where the federal government was essentially – it is essentially now like propping up major portions of your health and human services in states and localities, right? That that didn't exist back in 1918. So in 1918, the federal response was to you know make sure the newspapers didn't talk about this because we didn't want anyone um, losing focus on finishing off World War One, right? So that was like the, the most essential coordinated part of what the federal government did in the last pandemic. So very different from where we are right now. So we you know we haven't had reps at something like this. Um, so the federal government has done a good job of kind of those like those keystone resources, getting them down there. But when it comes to changes things like masking, if you will, there's just a, so many different voices that popped up. If we had a consistent voice early that didn't kind of tell the convenient lie, like hey, masking actually works, and then you know Fauci admitted that he said, hey, listen, you know we're not. We don't need masks as he was worried about the shortage. Uh, the shortage. And, yeah, and the thing is, like, those convenient lies are really damaging to trying to be effective in the later stages. Because when you say, oh, I had to tell this convenient lie in order to make the right thing happen, you know, immediately, what does anyone say? It's like, well, well are you telling me the truth now? Is, it, is, is this yeah. another kind of convenient lie for you to tell? So you just you can't do that, even though it could be detrimental to your short term objective. Um, so because there was, there was just certain things that were kind of between the federal and the state, um, some of those convenient lies popped up, um, created enough discord between the, what was being said at the state level, what was being said at the federal level to cause kind of some long-term problems and how we're, how we're dealing with this right now. So it's, you know, I, I think right now, if I were to give the federal response, it's, you know, maybe a C, um, I think the state of Texas in our initial response was like a B plus, A minus. Um, I think our early opening, 
you know, largely in response to, you know, the Shelley Luther type stuff mm-hmm. was, it was more recognition of what was already happening. So there was a ton of people and, you know, this is uncomfortable for some folks though, if government gets the aggregate cell phone data, not the individual, but the aggregate cell phone data. Yeah. And essentially right, right around the time that, you know, it looked like the governor was caving to Shelley Luther, he was caving to half of the Texas population moving around in a way that they hadn't done for three weeks. That's right. That yeah. really for, the, for the people at home who don't know who you're talking about, Shelly was the uh, owner of a salon who uh, refused to oblige by guidelines and opened her salon for business with right. a lot of uh, different guidelines for her, her customer base. Right. A lot of the guidelines that are that salons are using today, actually, now with the with the state open. And right. when you say that, uh, you know, the governor was also dealing with half the state of Texas and half the state of Texas was pissed at him. Yep. Um, you also said, which is what I really want to come back to, is the initial response rating you said was B plus A minus, right? Yeah. In my opinion, I can agree with that because in the beginning, Texas was doing really, really well as far as keeping the case count from climbing in a skyrocketing way, like in just yeah. astronomical numbers and astronomical days. And today... As we sit here on July 16, the current case count is uh, 37,000 as of yesterday with uh, 480-some-odd deaths as we sit. And the last time that I looked at this, I think, was in the beginning of June, end of May, and it was still, I think, in the teens. Yeah. So that's about when we started to reopen, too, was in the beginning of June. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what do you think contributed What's the data telling you guys that contributed to the skyrocket and these cases? Yeah, I mean, the, the spikes. Spikes, that's a better word. The spikes, you know, the spikes, if you will, came um, in such a clean way to point to certain milestones of Memorial Day absolutely caused a huge spike in cases. So we had a gradual increase after um, the end of shelter in place. But it was pretty smooth. I mean, we had day after day of 400, 400 cases a day. Um, Very, you know, and the the flow, if you will, one of the things that's most important to us, I mean, a lot of folks focus on the daily case counts. Well, daily case counts only matter as they're kind of a leading indicator of what's going to show up in the hospitals, right? Right. So, you know, throughout March and throughout April, you you get 400 cases and you got 20% of those cases to show up in the hospital. So, you know, just with those numbers, so 80 cases show up in the hospital. I know that your typical stay for your average case is three weeks, and that gives me an idea of how long a bed's going to be occupied by the folks that are going to be there. So if I, on a day, I see 400, I know that 80 are going to show up, and three weeks later, those need to come off, and I have an idea of kind of how that flow through works, if you will. Um, yeah, as okay. cases, you know, started to, we started to see more cases, we started to see more cases because we were testing more. Um, we were unlocked if you will so there was more folks um just getting out there and getting exposed to virus we started to see instead of 20 percent conversion we saw a 15 percent conversion so although mm-hmm. the case counts were a little bit higher fewer folks being hospitalized because it was more young folks now that is that that spread has continued so we are seeing higher case counts but we're seeing fewer folks percentage of those folks being hospitalized because right. the cases are younger 
Um, and you know, they happened around those spikes. So it was, you know, we got a big Memorial Day spike. We got a big spike um, after the, the first wave of protests mm-hmm. um, because you just have a lot of younger folks going to those events. Um, and as was was highlighted by a lot of the civil rights folks, um, you know, they, they used a lot of OC spray, uh, commonly called like mist yeah. or whatever. Yeah, um, you know, they, they used a lot of those type of things that caused struggle with breathing so people were taking off masks they were getting milk poured in their eyes they were close to each other um if they were an asymptomatic spreader i mean they were just giving it to the folks that were in their immediate vicinity whenever that type of stuff happened so um there, there was you know, necessarily plenty of folks that were in confined areas uh, with each other and there was that spike after that so you kind of had a uh, memorial day you had a protest spike and then clearly you know we're starting to see um the the peak of Fourth of July spike and, and the governor you know, before the Fourth of July um, was trying to do some things you know close bars and stuff to yeah. to smooth that out. Um, so a lot of folks got together, uh, particularly young folks. So more than half of our cases in Dallas County and same thing in Harris County are people under the age of thirty nine. That age bracket eighteen to thirty nine is is you know the majority of cases. Um, now fortunately. They are, you know, fewer of them are being hospitalized, and fortunately, fewer of them are, are dying. But they still are being hospitalized, and they still are dying. So, you know, although there's um, a measure of comfort that we can take that, hey, listen, our most vulnerable are not getting hammered by this right now, because there's so much virus still around with those young people, they're on their feet. Some of them still don't know that they've infected, that they're infected, or other folks are infected. There's just a lot of opportunities now. Because there's a large enough population for those vulnerable populations to get infected, so it's it's going to be really critical that we keep those um, vulnerable populations really under lock and key all the way out to the end of uh, August into September. So that was going to be my next question. You know, we're looking at the end of the statewide mandate at August fourth. Are we seeing an indication that we're going to continue with the stay at home order beyond that? Well, so the stay at home order um, is. There's there's a stay at home suggestion, if you will, in Dallas County. Okay. There's no stay at home. There's no stay at home statewide. Um, there there is a possibility that the governor, if if uh, hospitalizations start to rise in such a way where there's the potential of a healthcare crash, um, it seems pretty clear that the governor would reinstitute a shelter in place again. Yeah. Um, which you know certainly if we're about to crash our hospitals, that's that's the right thing to do um, because we don't we, we can't do that. I mean that, that means that we have a, a ton of excess deaths that were totally un, um, unnecessary, if you will, or uh, preventable. Avoided. Preventable, exactly. Yeah. They are preventable if we if we go to a shelter place. Hopefully, we'll we'll, we'll see that um, level off. But uh, regarding kind of the emergency orders and the emergency declaration, we're going to be seeing that at least until October, November. That 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 does not end now, um, and because we're, we're not seeing enough of a drop off, or we're not going. There's no way to see enough of a drop off before we get to October. After that time, and we won't have a vaccine before that. Yeah. Um, so necessarily, I mean, uh, the governor's orders are going to be extended well past that August fourth. Gosh, man, that's really frustrating for some folks. I know that uh, yeah, a lot of. A lot of us are blessed enough to have jobs where we can work from home. Uh, yep. You know, I'm a veteran cashing in on the GI Bill and being able to get an education through all this. And they give off a monthly housing allowance. So that's very nice. But how uh, how have you seen 
your fellow commissioners and uh, also Judge Clay dealing with those that are less fortunate, those that have been uh, really impacted in such a way that it's just hard to navigate. So there's kind of a strange matrix of how things are working. Like, you know, the federal response and the, and the kind of the stimulus checks, um, the, the extension of unemployment benefits, yep. um, smooth things over for some time. But we're getting into a time period now where we're starting to see more things break. So the beginning crisis, if you will, was a lot to do with people that had not accessed um, aid for the poor, if you will. So, you know, the 25-year-old that, that uh, maybe, you know, the U.S. board um, possibly could be um, the Mexican national, but they had essentially you know, gone to high school and left high school and worked, you know, the past seven years. Are you talking about they a got, dreamer? Huh? Are you talking about a dreamer? Yeah, so some yeah. folks like that are, you know, so um, you, know, you, have, you have folks that just have worked and, you know, because they were essentially graduating, you know, post-08, you know, they, they, they'd been working and, and never had to access, um, go to a food pantry. Uh, right. They never had to, you know, get any government assistance. And all of a sudden, like, they didn't have a job. There's a lot of them that didn't have a job. So there was kind of the newly poor that were working poor or working class that we really had to figure out. We had to, you know, literally show them and tell them where the food pantries are what um, you know, what they could access, what what was there for them, rental assistance, the rest of it, and just you know, trying to get. We had to do a ton of education to those folks that were essentially newly poor that had never had access that type of stuff, which was a, a pretty heavy lift because there was a lot of folks like that. Um, wow. The economy really was kicking butt, and there was a lot of people that just um, got hit hard quickly and, and didn't know how to be poor, if you will. Sounds weird, but that's the case. Um, now we're facing as this is a little bit longer the tooth. Those folks um, still don't have the ability to go back to meaningful work. Some have been able to, you know, particularly if they're like in trades. Um, many of those trades are not flourishing, but they're still going along, right? So they're, if they're building houses and they're, yeah, they're, they're surviving. But there's, you know, still major parts of what was the essential economy that are just closed down. I mean, there's just, you know, um, food and beverage production, um, not just, you know, that are just shut down. There's, there's factories that are you know, gone and never going to come back. So now this is longer than two. There's really starting to become some pretty big tensions over how do we keep these people in housing? Um, some of them are in an hour, three and four months, they haven't paid uh, rent yep. or they haven't paid mortgage. And, you know, what do you do to the landowner's rights, right? What do you do to the bank's rights? Because uh, they're not, you know, now, the positive thing or positive part of that problem is it's not like if you kick that folk, that person out of your rent house, no one else is going to be there to be able to rent it. So if you can find a way to, to ease the burden and help them get back on their feet, they get a job, they can you know, pay that back rent, then you know, things will work out, if you will. Um, but you know, there's, there's just um, a larger and larger hole that's being dug. Um, you know, putting that rent off, putting those mortgage payments off, that's a lot of folks. Um, they're getting their food. They're getting, I mean, you know, we're just talking about survival stuff, but there's a, there's a pretty, pretty big cliff that we're heading towards this fall that's going to be um, really, really difficult to sort out. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I don't know what that's going to look like. And I know that you guys are really trying to figure out ways to, uh, to respond to that because, you know, I, I've been keeping up not on social media, but I've been going directly to the websites, the dot govs, the dot orgs and, you know, things like that to get information, trying to get to the source. And it seems like 
the commissioners here in the county, because I, I can't speak for the rest of the country, but uh, you guys are really taking a proactive look at what this looks like even into 2021. And you guys are really trying to focus on trying to balance enough of an eco economic build with also trying to keep people safe. Uh, I know that herd immunity has been thrown around a lot. Uh, that doesn't appear to work as well as some people thought it did. Um, what do you see in the decision-making process, those small steps that we don't pay attention to, that we even don't see, that are really guiding the decision-making as you guys move forward? Yeah. I mean, the, the most important thing that we can do is, you know, protect the the vital and key parts of the economy, right? So, I mean, we've got a major industries. We've got to do the best we can to keep those folks on their feet. Um, so, you know, being proactive regarding masking and offering um, smart CARES loans, if you will, to help people get the PPE they need to help re, you know, refit, retrofit um, their workspaces so they can do the things that are necessary for the economy to continue to survive, but also they keep folks employed and, you know, keep, keep money churning around the economy because that's, that's really important. So a lot of it from, you know, the county's perspective is, you know, take the federal dollars that we're given and really hit our way on the low-hanging fruit. Okay, keep the stuff that's going to keep people working uh, as best we can and, you know, don't don't spread around those dollars in places that, that are not going to have second order effects and better returns, if you will. Um, so we've, we've had to prioritize a lot of that. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's tough for the, the local governments though, because, you know, we, um, rely on a fair deal of funds from the state. And yeah. particularly when it comes to an emergency, we rely on a lot of funds from the federal government. So at the end of the day, if we were trying to just fight this thing on our own, I mean, we could absolutely increase our budget by half. Um, so, you know, about a billion dollar budget, we could easily, you know, spend of Dallas County taxpayer dollars, like, you know, 500 million if the government didn't come in and do that. Now, the problem is, you know, overall, look at what your government is doing. The, the federal government is not raising those dollars in taxes. That's completely dead. They printed that money. And the, you know, the someday we're going to have to pay the piper on that. And it will be devastating, um, depending on who holds the debt. If it's continually China, then, then we're in big trouble. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's, that's something, that's something that you necessarily, you know, can't look too much into right now because you've got to make sure that you're alleviating the suffering that's going on and protecting lives. I mean, at the, at the bare minimum. Um, but yeah, when it comes to, the need that's out there, there's oceans of need. And even with all the federal resources we have, we have like maybe a Great Lakes, you know, yeah. body of, uh, of, of resources to give. So we've got to be very tactical to make sure none of it's wasted. Right. And I, man, you know, you were talking about printing of money. Uh, a lot of people are, as, as I understand it, there's a lot of fear, not only because the national debt has grown by, what is it now, $2 trillion, $3 trillion since this whole thing started. Um, yeah. And it was already somewhere in the high billions, if not already in the trillion. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, Trillions, yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're looking at just even printing off pieces of paper, killing more trees. And the only effect that we're going to get is making somebody feel a little bit better. Now, that's my personal opinion. And I'm also Democrat. So I, I look at this and I'm like, help the people as best you can, you know, but I voted Democrat in 2016. And here in 2020, I'm kind of torn between the two because. I don't want the national debt to continue rising in the name of making sure that people have the money to buy food for their kids and whatnot. 
because I'm, I'm also suffering a little bit. But what I know to be true is that there are a lot of small businesses just in Dallas County that have less than 50 employees and couldn't get the PPP program. They couldn't get into that. So can you explain the, uh, the, not the politics, but the idea of that program and how that was supposed to work? Yeah. So the, the biggest problem with accessing federal resources is, you know, it's not easy. It just isn't. Um, you know, none, of those, none of those processes are simple. So those that were best poised to take advantage of those dollars already had an account for non-staff. They already had a legal team or at least, you know, uh, they already had a, a lawyer on, on retainer. Yeah. So your smallest and most vulnerable businesses usually kind of, just because of the nature of it, um, they, they have their relationships with their lawyer and their accountants and, and some of those other professionals. Um, on an as-needed type basis, well, you know, your as-needed support is not going to be there when there's a flood of this stuff happening, right? Because that that one accountant handles 200 businesses, and the biggest businesses are the ones that just get to that first are going to be the 10 or the 20, so yeah. the 200 of those clients that, that you know, get their, their um, itch scratched, if you will. So it was bigger and more sophisticated businesses that were able to access those um, that first round of federal loans. Now, the, you know, when the feds pushed out a lot of CARES dollars, they said to the counties and the cities, hey, listen, you know, mimic our program as well and try to catch some of those other folks. Um, and, and, and Dallas County has done that. So we're still, though, I mean, you know, we're probably going to be able to issue loans. Um, very, I mean, really the same program as the PPP. Um, you know, we've, we've got a ton of uh, minority women-owned businesses that are, that are accessing these loans and getting them, but it's still only 20% of those that are applying. And we're, we're not doing it first come, first serve like the feds did. We're doing it on a lottery basis. So at least we're trying to make it more fair in that regard. But um, there's still just a ton of need out there that's just not, not going to get met. Um, and it, it, it's just it, – it speaks to the volume of how painful a shutdown like that is. Um, so, you know, I, and that's one thing I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm certainly, I don't think folks think of me as an extremist on, on, on any side of things. And, you know, I'm not down the middle because it feels good to be there, but, you know, it, it tends to be that, you know, truth usually sometimes lies somewhere in the middle. Um, so, you know, you had a lot of folks that were saying, you know, you got to shut it down and there'll be no problem shutting it down. No, there's tremendous pain that comes with shutting it down. An enormous but, amount of pain. Yeah. And, 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 the, and the biggest thing, too, is one thing that, that you got to caution is, like, it's systemic pain. Because just like those PPP loans are easy to access for, you know, the, the, the most well-poised for it, well, Fortune 500 companies and companies that have been in business for a long time and businesses that, you know, are just uh, more sophisticated because of the length of time they've been operating, they're the ones that are going to survive. So what happens is the rich get richer when it comes to business playing fields, right? So, I mean, your small competitors are getting smoked right now yep. because they have 50 people, they had a great idea, but they didn't have enough money to, hire the, you know, to keep those 50 people going, if you will. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, that's extremely painful. So you have that going on with businesses, but it's also going on with individuals too, right? I mean, yeah. that always happens during the time of, of financial uncertainty, right? Because if you're rich and you're sitting on cash and people start foreclosing on homes and people start selling their business and selling capital, capital is cheap and you buy. I mean, you know, what, what is Warren Buffett doing right now? He is buying the dip. Yeah. And, yeah, and that, that necessarily 
you know, stretches that barbell out so much further, the risk of pitcher. So it's, um, it's not necessarily a, um, you know, evil ploy by those evil capitalists. It's just, you know, a, a natural uh, progression to, you know, to the way things work out in these type of crises. And it's, it's really important for government to be responsive to that and make sure that we're doing what we can to prop up the little guy as best we can because it's going to help down the road regarding the health of markets, um, you know, making sure that we don't have, you know, monopoly powers in every, everything we go to. I mean, yeah. you know, it's kind of funny how there's like, you know, five telephone carriers and, you know, only so many, like when you, when you see, you know, so many industries that have consolidated, you have like three choices, you know, with life becomes more competitive, no problem. That's true. And, you know, we we see a lot of these large companies that are getting these PPP loans, Yeah, sometimes in the billions. Um, but they also employ larger, per, larger percentages of the population. And those become loans if they don't use them the way that they're directed. And they're directed to be going to employees and keeping the business running so that people can keep working, right? So here in Dallas County, you said that we're, we're doing it by a lottery system. And you also said that the advantage kind of leans toward the richer and that's systemic. So how, I mean, you're a Republican and that's kind of strange to hear a Republican say, but how do you guys navigate that part and try to make it so that the little guy can get propped up? Is there a process for that? Sure. Oh, I mean, that is kind of the, the purpose of that loan process, right? I mean, so yeah. we're, you know, the, the, the folks that were really well prepared are accessing the federal loans, a body of somewhat less prepared folks is getting a hold of these loans. So, uh, you know, we're doing our part by kind of pushing it down a little bit on that scale, if you will, but getting all the way to, you know, the, the, the far extreme of the scale of people that, you know, just started the business, you know, in, in January or they've been operating for six months and they have two employees, mm-hmm. you know, it is, it is extremely hard for any entity to get a hold of those folks and, and help them and try to save them now. You know, hopefully if they're so early and so lean, if someone, you know, finds themselves on unemployment or you know, they haven't had a, a big lease or anything that's going to force them to like go to bankruptcy, they can kind of stretch along. But in all likelihood, you know, there, there's just really no good way to, to, to get to those people and get the resources that they need. Um, so, you know, we, we got to try to get as far as we can along that spectrum with county dollars, but at the end of the day, you know, you have to be uh, realistic on how far down you can get it. Just, you know, they got to meet you more than halfway. I mean, they got to show up and apply. And some of those folks, if you're like a three man shop, um, you know, your, your kids aren't in school. So you're, you're, you're barely just meeting your household needs. Yeah. Having a, a hell of a time trying to get anything done for your business. So there's just a lot of businesses like that that are necessarily going to go under. And that means, you know, more employment payments, um, and as we saw after you know the tragedy that was the 08, you know, you're going to see more people on social security disability because of you know a ton of problems. So yeah, I mean it's just you do the best you can. You try to get as as far down that scale as you can, but at some point, you know, you got to be met more than halfway by those that are on the other side of the world. Yeah. Gosh, man. I mean, uh, when we talk about systemic problems, we typically associate that with racism. And even today with the rich getting richer and the poor ending up staying poor, um, we look around and I'd I'd like to transition over to uh, the wake of what happened in Minnesota. Um, If you're comfortable talking about it, you okay with it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the biggest things that have been pushed around 
is defunding the police. And, you know, as I understand the idea of defunding the police as it originally started was not to abolish the police. That's not what people were saying. They were saying, take the fundage from that so they can't buy tanks and pour that into education. So how, what are your thoughts? What is, what is your reaction to the idea of defunding the police? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not new. Um, the types of things that are, that are being presented, Yeah, you know, spend less on police, um, spend more on education, um, spend more on other interventions. Um, I think some of it from the folks uh, that are suggesting it is sloppy at best um, and just doesn't have uh, a clear understanding of policy. So, I mean, from, from my perspective, um, reducing overall spending for police is something that can be realistic and you know should be targeted. Doing great um, once, so far. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 once once you get certain things right. So, um, yeah, I, I represented police officers. I was I was a, a prosecutor in Dallas County, That's and right. then represented the Dallas Fraternal Order of Police for a time. Yep. So, um, and you know, my mom was an investigator for the state of New Jersey. I mean, I've, I've, she used to you know, train police officers on domestic violence and a couple other uh, areas uh, in the academies in New Jersey. So, you know, I've, I understand it. Um, you know, I'm sure there's folks that understand it better than me, but I'm not, you know, completely going into the same one. Yeah. Um, what, one of the, the biggest problems, and, and you know, Chief David Brown said it, is police are asked to do too much, right? So addressing that issue is where I think the majority of folks can agree um, when it comes to the idea of defunding. It's, it's going to have to be kind of a tactical retreat, if you will, because it's not like the police can just step down one day and then, you know, someone else step up right away, right? right? It's going to be, there, there's essentially three buckets, if you will, that police need to get out of the business of and someone else needs to step up. And, and there's there's already models for this. We're kind of working on some of these pieces in in Dallas County. And it's, and it's been, there's been some of this work in other places. So, you know, the first big bucket is mental illness. And then that has long been, hey, listen, you know, a cop showing up either by themselves or at all to some of these events Sometimes yeah. it's necessary, right? I mean, if you have someone who's schizophrenic and they have a weapon, like someone with a weapon needs to show up, right? That's but if right. you have someone who's having um, an episode, but not necessarily you know, a violent one, yeah, maybe you have a police officer, one element show up, EMT show up, but you need someone there, you know, the, the social worker type. And I know that's a bad word for some folks, uh, particularly, you know, cops. Uh, but, you know, I mean, actually, that's not true. Many of them would wholeheartedly agree that they take, you know, 10 hours of mental health training and they're like, dude, there's people that have degrees on this. They need to be showing up here to help talk the person down, to, to recognize, you know, what they're looking at. You know, someone can tell me that um, someone is bipolar, but, you know, I don't know how their media um, expresses itself. I mean, you need someone with some pretty hardcore mental training to, to show up and say, okay, this is what we're dealing with. This is how we turn the temperature down. And this is how we start them in the system. And it's a system that is, you know, fractured in many pieces. Uh, I sit on our um, VHLT, our behavioral health leadership team here in Dallas County. That's good. And, you know, so I, I, I know the resources that we have. They're too little, but they're doing a good job, right? So, so many of the police encounter, crisis encounter, does not get routed into the right thing um, unless it's 
the worst of the worst, unless someone's really on the way to jail. It's like, all right, we're, we're diverting them because they don't belong here. But there's you know a shade of those that kind of get de-escalated on the street level, if you will, that still should be pushed toward recess resources that are not because there's not a ton of resources. So you really have to blow up and screw up before you know we're taking you to jail because you know you broke out windows, you assaulted someone, but you had no idea where you were. Uh, and, and, but then we divert them and get them the help they need, right? We need to do a better job of having someone there to assess kind of the stuff that doesn't have to be taken off the street right now and pushing it right at that point, not waiting in two weeks for a follow-up call or something like that. Something that's there can, you know, if there's interested people, interested family members around, start getting people into mental health right away. So there's kind of two things that happen to happen with that bucket. I mean, one, you have to have more mental health resources on the other side because you're going to be pushing, you know, more people that are in the non-crisis intervention toward that area. But then someone who can, you know, properly manage that at the street level, if you will, and have police officers dealing a lot with that, a lot less with that. Uh, a lot of times it ends up being criminal trespass, someone you know, having a major issue or a, at a seven lens or at a place. Same thing. I mean, officer shows up, make sure you know this is this is not escalated. Got from talking with someone, um, that social services individual can kind of you know, pull them away from the situation. The officer can issue the, the criminal trespass um, warning so they don't come back. But you know, the handoff goes to someone that's going to be getting them into resources right away, right? Getting them, you know, stopping the revolving door. Because typically what happens is cop shows up, issues it, guy kind of calms down, gets afraid, comes back two hours later, either because, you know, they're high or they're, or they're mentally ill. And, you know, now we just have them in jail and we haven't done anything to solve the problem. We're going to keep them in for, you know, uh, a day, three days. They don't bond out, but they get their back time and they're back out and they're causing the same problem again. That's the, the epitome of a revolving door. So right. the, recidivist, piece, the recidivist really starts to climb at that point. You're not, like yeah. I said, you're treating symptoms and not treating the problem. Yeah. I mean, you're just, you're not, you're, and you're just, you know, you're paying for it in jail days, $60 a day, where we could easily trade $120 on the first couple of days of some meaningful training to get diagnosed, to get on long acting drugs, and, you know, just to, to start breaking that cycle. So we need, you know, the, the support to break the cycle outside of the street level, but we need a good street level intervention with you know, the, the social worker type that's going to get to that. So that's kind of bucket one of diverting um, uh, law enforcement funds. You know, you can, as, as you get better at that, you can start having less um, police time used for that. That'll allow you to have fewer elements on the road because you're having fewer of those calls. The second piece, and it's really, really close to me, is the addiction piece, right? I mean, you talking about drug code. addiction? Yeah. Yeah. Drug, drug, drug and alcohol problems. I mean, you know, we do nothing um, besides, you know, make sure that people don't um, die from being dope sick in the jail when it comes to addiction. We need to do a better job of, you know, when we, when we receive someone out of the street level or it's, you know, hey, we're using Narcan. Like, we need to get people to help right away from street intervention or, you know, when they're, when they're placed in jail uh, as soon as possible because if you don't, you know, you have a shot. You know, you have a window. They're in government custody. They're, they're uh, essentially, uh, you know, because of whatever interaction it was, uh, some law was broken. Um, you have a chance now to start an intervention, getting them to, to help. Um, so, you know, police officers will be there initially to deal with whatever criminal problem that, that brought them to it. Right. Or, you know, or if you have a police officer seeing someone on the street, you know, they see someone, you know, nodding off, passing off, or, you know, I mean, 
crazy enough, and I think a lot of folks know this, you know, sometimes you straight up see someone that's on the streets with a needle hanging out of their arm. Yeah, yep. I know you're driving, um, so, driving down, uh, what is that, uh, Ross Avenue area, down in that neighborhood. Uh, I see that a lot, actually. Yeah, I mean, you need someone, you know, you need to have the, the, the police will have a nice clean handoff. Um, you know, they, they can hold on to the charge, but we, you know, get them into um, recovery um, as quickly as possible um, with, you know, resources that, that aren't really fully there, just like the mental illness piece. We build up those two resources and we get a good way that officer can quickly hand off to someone that guides them through those resources, but to stop those two huge sources of the revolving door. I mean, those two camps of people probably are at least a third of our jail population at any given time. And they're more than a third regarding um, the, the overall buildup of cases, probably, you know, closer to a half of all cases that you're dealing with in criminal courts are those that, you know, are dealing with mental illness or are dealing with addiction. Um, the, the, the quicker we get them out of, out of there, we're saving money in jails, saving money on our courts time. But right. you know, that, that, that's going to require essentially a um, tactical retreat, which means that you don't just immediately step down and you police officer resources first, which is hard to tell you people, but they listen. We're going to keep spending as much as our police. This is what we see in years one, two, three, and four, how it can step down. And, you know, in year one of that transition, you're going to be spending all your money. So you're going to be spending a lot of money, essentially, in years yeah. one of pulling that transition. And the last bucket that is absolutely critical is, is reaching out to youth. Um, we have a bunch of kind of goofy programs. You, know, you got um, cops playing basketball with kids. You have PAL stuff. And it's never been a good fit. Um, I think it's good for police to show that they care and community policing is important, but we need, you know, kind of separate institutions, keeping youth, you know, giving them meaning essentially. And that's, and that's what all, I mean, really it boils down to meaning on all three things. When people have meaning in their lives, um, addiction can be overcome. When you have a reason to live and not have a disordered mentally ill life, you can, you know, play a competent role in working with professional providers to get to yourself, at least to a place where you can, you know, take care of yourself to some degree. But it's about meaning. Right. I mean, you got to have a reason. There's a lot of very mentally ill people that can get it together because they have a daughter or they have a son or they have a loved one that they just, they got to do this. For. Um, same thing with addiction, right? I mean, there's there's people that, that, that find meaning, whether it's religion or the individuals that can point to it. Um, and, and there's a, that, that same component is important with youth. I mean, if there's a meaningful future ahead of you, there's these you know people that aren't the coolest in the world, they're a little bit geeky or whatever, but they got a good spot for me and I can do my homework and I can do this and they're, they're helpful to me. They care. Um, you know, that 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 powerful draw of meaning is gonna help those those kids um, you know, not be part of the, the criminal statistics because that's that's another huge swath of things, right? I mean, you know, you have young men with the terribly shrunken frontal temporal lobe, right? I mean, your frontal temporal lobe development continues until you're 25. So that's that's your impulse control, right? Yep. But there's plenty of kids that show up at 18 and they're as big as a man they're ever going to be. So you're, you're physically at your peak. You're mentally not where you need to be. You are a stick of dynamite ready to be lit. And a lot of those kids get lit and yeah, they don't blow up. They go blow up all over our society, right? Yeah, it's exacerbated so, by the uh, circumstance in their in their neighborhoods and their communities too. Yeah, so getting to those sticks of dynamite, essentially giving them some meaning, giving them something to look toward, work toward, 
um, is going to be an important intervention. They do all those things, then you can step down and you can quote unquote defund the police. But until you do those things competently, you have those things in place. Uh, if you back off now, we've already seen this. I mean, this this is um, this is something that happens every time there's a major pushback against the police. And this is not me saying Black Lives Matter. This is your fault. This happened in um, St. Louis after um, uh, the stuff that happened up there. Um, this ha- you know, you have the, the, the major protests, stuff burned, police just backed up. I mean, as, as an institution yeah, policy, yep. you know, we, gave, we, we gave a lot of these crime rates spiked like crazy. I mean, this happened in South Central LA after the riots. After 92, you're cop- right. Yeah, cops, I mean, every time this happens. And I'm not saying that to, to point to the community saying, hey, listen, this is your fault. It, it's, it's important, you know, that they be able to share their legitimate grievances. Um, but it's also important that they realize that, hey, listen, like, you may not want police to do certain types of interventions, but you need them there quickly. You cannot you know, have to wait for them 20 minutes when you hear gunshots, because if you do, more people are going to die. So, you know, there, there has to be a meeting of, of leaders in the African-American communities and their police forces on how they're going to deal um, with these interventions in the meantime, because, yeah, you know, tensions are high, but cops just you know they back up they retreat and it leads to a ton of problems that's right you know and i'd like to respond to those three buckets uh the first one being having what what is essentially a four-letter word sometimes social workers in those situations where police are responding drug and alcohol uh recovery responses as well and then the third bucket uh reaching out to the youth uh yesterday actually i did a uh, recording with a social worker um, really close friend of ours, uh, family, more or less. And she is a, uh, she's a licensed master social worker at a nonprofit. And she was talking about the response for domestic violence specifically because that's her speciality and how that has increased by nearly 13%, I think, since this COVID has really taken us to staying at home. And, um, then in drug and alcohol recovery, now I'm a former resident of the Dallas 24 hour club. And, you know, that's one of the most helpful places that I've ever been because it gave me a safe place to recover. And then, you know, you were talking about the youth and immediately when that happened, you know, being from Oregon where the democratic policy is helpful little man, the first thing that popped in my mind were the disproportionately affected poorer communities. And that includes, you know, trailer park, quote unquote, trailer park trash, the people who are growing up in the real deep urban environments like the projects and uh, the barrios with uh, with our Chicano communities. I mean, I've seen all of these things and you're talking about taking it a not a systematic approach to it, but a real step by step process. As opposed to, which seems reasonable, as opposed to Minnesota, I just pulled it up on my computer over here, having voted to abolish the police force and go to a community supervision. I I don't understand. They don't have weapons. They can't do that. But, you know, again, that is what it is. So what do you think is is a reasonable process? for reallocating these funds to the, to the places that they need to be. Like, I mean, can we keep the money with the police and just say, instead of spending this on tanks and ballistic vests, why don't you take some of this fundage and create an office for social workers to be there? Drug and alcohol responding uh, efforts like ambulances and whatnot. 
I think that you got to get out of police budgets. Um, so, you know, you got to sit down with um, members of the affected communities, right? And show them what budgets look like and make good, hard promises to say, hey, listen, you know, our budget year next year is not going to look different from the last year. But over the next five years, this is what the taper off looks like. This is what, you know, the, the funding looks like to, to change um, these three buckets, the youth, the the uh, addiction piece and mental illness uh, and you have to get by it right but there's i mean minnesota's approach and anyone else's approach just to you know do something abruptly like that will absolutely fail um because you know just um whenever there's a void you know bad stuff fills it right it's necessarily the case we backed out of iraq and bad things happened right um, almost immediately i think within two months the regime was back in power right right there's no you know and, and it would be somewhat unfair to say that, um, you know, some of our urban areas are like Iraq, but there is a similarity in that, you know, the percentage of bad people that are causing the problem in those areas is not more than 10%. I mean, you just have a solid, you know, just like you did in Iraq and other places, you have uh, 10% of people that are, you know, more than antisocial, have zero care for the community and anyone else but themselves. They may be living tremendously disordered lives and they can't even think about it in context of the damage they're doing to other people. They are just living straight up animal like for the next minute, for the next high, for the next day, right? Right. And those are the people that are pushing the problem. So, you know, sitting shoulder to shoulder with the good people in those neighborhoods and saying, listen, this is what you're facing, right? The, uh, you know, yes, police officers have pulled over your 90% good people and harassed them in such a way that you can't stand it anymore. We're going to do a better job of making sure that we're, you know, not pulling people over for BS stuff. We're citing people rather than arresting them. We're seeing small marijuana cases, you know, the small things like that. You know, we're going to we're going to police in such a way that your community can agree with. But we've got to be shoulder to shoulder when it comes to these ten percent of folks that are either sociopaths or psychotic or just so, you know, beyond. Uh, redemption in many respects that we need to be shoulder to shoulder to work on this piece. Right. Yeah. And in the meantime, we have to get, make sure that, you know, the, the 13 year old, they can go one of two ways. They can be part of the 90% that's going to be, you know, functional great member of the community, or they're going to join the ranks of that 10% that are destroying um, people's lives in these areas. Um, we got to, you know, work on that piece together. So it's, it's one of those things where it is going to require, Sitting together, shoulder to shoulder, working on a plan, realizing this is this does not get implemented in a year. This gets implemented, you know, in the first five years in, in fairly dramatic fashion. But it's not we're not done until ten years out. Political will to do that typically doesn't, you know, exist because you know ten years you may not be still in office by that. That's right. Um, you know, you, you know, unless you show the most dramatic effect right away, you don't get reelected. So city councils and places in Minnesota are going to do stupid things like that because they want to be reelected. Well, unfortunately, you know, sometimes you got to do the right thing rather than the popular. Uh, which is really hard. I mean, it, I agree with you. You know, it's stupid. It's stupid to get rid of your law enforcement because there are laws and you need to have some sort of protection for the, for the communities that are there. I can't imagine that this is going to work out very well, but I don't know. I guess time will tell. How do you react to, um, to the thoughts that the police themselves are corrupt. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. There again, let's let's take a look at Iraq, right? So let's take a look at our soldiers. Um, there was plenty. There's you know plenty of instances. You know, Abu Ghraib, right? Abu Ghraib. Um, yeah, you, you're you're put in a position um, 
of you know tremendous power over people. A little accountability. Um, yeah, with little accountability. So yeah, a lot of things can go wrong. Um, you know, are there just overwhelmingly just tremendous amounts of evil cops? No, there isn't. Most people go into policing for all the right reasons. Do some people go bad along the way? Absolutely. I represent police officers, you know, a couple of which are serving time in Huntsville right now for terrible things that they did. Mm-hmm. They absolutely did it. I mean, you know, they, they pled guilty. But they're, you know, they're doing four years or whatever. I mean, there's, there's some people that have done some really bad things. Um, so, you know, to be um, naive regarding human nature is silly. I mean, there's people that go in for the right reasons and end up becoming really jaded and then becoming selfish and then doing something really bad. So, um, but I think that the, the rule does hold that the majority of police officers are there for the right reasons and they're doing the right things. The problem is that when they have a bad day, when they screw up, when they make an emotional decision, someone cannot. I mean, someone, you know, there, there's, you know, they have a, a tremendous amount of power uh, because they essentially own the monopoly of violence, right? So, you know, it's really important that we do a much better job of getting the right people in the profession in the first place. So, you know, paying more per cop is probably a much better idea. Um, you know, and, and finding people, it's not so much, you know, that they need to have a college degree because, you know, they need to be particularly smart. I want someone who has things like a college degree or a significant amount of military experience because that shows me they have a tremendous amount of discipline that, you know, they, they can um, you know, yeah. force themselves to do hard things. And sometimes the hard thing is to be emotionally under control. Um, so, you know, that, that's something, there's, there's a matrix there that we need to start working on. Like, there's a lot of parts of policing you do not have to be intellectually superior, right? So I don't necessarily need someone that has the full college degree. Maybe they have an associate's degree and we do a better job of testing some strength. Right. So people that are able to really keep themselves calm emotionally and react properly in situations, people that, you know, that have confidence in character. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate of changing how we hire our officers, paying them more because it is a difficult job. But yeah, I mean, if we start doing the right things on those other three buckets, we're going to get people that are generally better. Now, having said that, are we going to have, you know, no more instances of someone going, going totally wrong? Absolutely not. That's human nature. People fall. People are, you know, good up until the moment that they're not. And I've, I've seen some very, very unfortunate situations where someone made uh, a tremendous mistake. And I can really tell this was, this was someone of good character, but they did something out of fear that was inexcusable. They can never be a cop and they'll have to be held accountable um, in the criminal system as well. So you know, there's still going to be heartbreaking things like that. You just got to you know, reduce it as best you can by creating um, the best environment for, you know, really, really, really optimizing for the ability to have restraint and good decision-making in tough and difficult situations. And I can agree with that. You know, uh, I'm, I'm a buffoon, you know, I'm no expert, but when I look at this problem, I, I think about the bad apple argument. Uh, here soon, I'm going to be talking to a guy who uh, works with R street Institute uh, and they do a lot of legislative and uh, and community work as far as the paperwork part is con- is concerned, pushing that to legislators and trying to get policy uh, pushed away. And he was a uh, he's a military veteran of twenty years, and he was talking about the culture of police and why it is why it justifies racism. And he talks about the idea of the one bad apple being a horrible argument. So you know what? How would you? respond to the idea that, sure, there is just one bad apple, 
but that bad apple rots the entire bunch because every nobody says anything. Has that been your experience with the police force here in DPD? I know it's um, a hard I, question, but yeah, no, there, there certainly are um, certain things that can allow the bad apple to continue on. Right, um, you can hold in many police departments. You can hold fairly significant racist views and still not get called to account for it. Um, and, and that's something I, I think just because, you know, it's a paramilitary organization and there is a, a, a great deal of need for loyalty and um, cohesiveness. Now, I, the thin blue line is a little bit of a fallacy. It, it does break down over time, but, you know, there is a, a great deal of camaraderie. So, a lot of the times, because of the difficulty of the mission, because of, of the, the emotional strain and the rest of it, um, there is a priority placed on being part of the team and not calling each other out um, for a whole host of things. Like, you know, you have a bad marriage, you're cheating on your wife. Cops stick up for each other doing stuff like that. There's a lot of moral families besides racism um, that officers are known to allow their fellow officers to get by with. Well, he drinks a lot, too. but he doesn't drink and drive. Domestic violence right. is also sometimes possible. Yeah. So, you know, there's, you know, because of that loyalty piece, you know, there just needs to be a little bit of you know, good leadership. I mean, good leadership steps in and say, hey, listen, I want you guys to have each other's backs for a lot of stuff. But part of having each other's backs is making sure that you're not going down a path where, okay, listen, you got really banged up the other night. Are you doing this every night? Are you drinking every night? You know, we gotta, we got to be your brother's keeper in that regard. Um, you know, what's going on with, um, you know, you hitting on that secretary all the time. You know, right. I know you're married and stuff like that. Like, you right. know, helping each other, keep each other accountable. I know there's plenty of um, military outfits that do a really good job of maintaining that cohesion in the world. They're also holding each other to a high standard regarding their personal lives as well. And that's just a matter of you know, good um, good leadership within those departments. So it's, it's, it's something to mandate, but it's something that as a public, we have to recognize. Like, hey, listen, like, for them to be healthy, right, they're going to be a tight-knit group. Um, we have to ask their leaders just to make sure that part of that cohesion, part of that loyalty doesn't necessarily, you know, we're not going to immediately kick people out of their group, but like someone tells a racist joke, you, you stop them. So listen, like we can't do that. We're not, we're not that type of, we're not that type of organization. We don't do that. Um, you know, we're reminding things like that and getting them to a place. And, you know, you have like meaningful sensitivity training type stuff, not, you know, not some, BS thing that gets thrown up in corporate, but like, you know, get someone that really gets down to a level and said, listen, like, this is how um, you dehumanize folks. When you start telling jokes about, you know, black guy does this and this and that, like that, you, you're just, over time, even your African-American fellow officers are going to get to the place like, oh, those people do this. Like, whoa, wait, what? how did we get there? You know, it, it, it takes really good leadership to make sure that um, your people are tight knit, comfortable enough to call each other out, call each other accountable, and, and, and be better when it comes to that stuff. And you know, so it's yeah, but there bad apples are allowed to infect, um, and there's a lot of keeping quiet about things because of discussing loyalty over um, integrity, the, the integrity, that the health of the entire body. Yeah, I, one of the things that I've heard proposed um, by just my peers, you know, not, not at any decision maker level is more initial training in the beginning so that we can weed out these kids that come in as bullies who just want a pistol to have some power. 
and really focus and hone in on the guys and gals that can comprehend right from wrong and who have that moral strength and moral integrity to call it what it is. Uh, and I think that there's some merit to that. Do you think that that's something that we could, not we, I'm, I'm nobody, but do you think that's something that could be done over a, say, five to 10 period, year period? Yeah, well, and, and don't just count, you know, your ability to um, make that a reality because, you know, the, the world needs, I mean, listen, there's, there's a lot of voices now that are shouting to defund the police. Right now, it's an easy thing to say, and it's it's captured in a in a quick segment. But it's really were, it's a really catchy statement. I, I yeah, gotta I, I mean, gotta admit. And and is and if um, you know if you were to find a way to say let's you know uh, character up the police, I don't know. I mean, just increase their character integrity. I mean, you know, protect the integrity of the police or you know, inject them with integrity. Um, however, you want to phrase it. I mean, you know that should be um, a competing narrative. It really should. I mean, um, some type of hey, listen. Um, we do a pretty good job in our military of demanding integrity because if you go and shoot across a line and get us in international trouble, a lot of people die. Yeah. So, you know, really hammering on character, the, the teaching of it, and then also along the way, if you see someone, you know, step out of line regarding that character piece and they're hammered, right? So, yeah, it, it, it's going to be better screening and, but also just, Better culture, and that, that's that's leadership in, in those departments. And I think uh, I think we should be asking for that. And I, I wouldn't discount your voice in that in that uh, in that struggle. I appreciate that. So I think the next logical question, and I think that we can close with this. I know we're getting close, and uh, I know that you're a busy man. I don't want to take more of your time than necessary. Um, let's talk about some solutions that we can do as voters. You know, you hear the response of you know very assertive guys who puff up their chest well then go out and vote for it you know so there's some merit to that right but that almost takes away the motivation to do that what are some of the other things that we can do just on the voters level should we write petitions are we emailing our congressmen like what what are some effective things that we can do to hopefully spur this kind of change yeah um writing opinion pieces, letters, letters to the editor, sharing um, thoughtful commentary on um, how to fix things, but really being supporters of the difficult non-grand gesture path, right? I mean, non, it's really, Non-grand gesture, you mean like radical ideas and radical uh, decision-making? Yeah, I mean, just, you know, or just things that are, you know, hey, this is the solution. It'll take two days. All we got to do is X, Y, and Z. Oh, yeah. When, okay. anyone, when anyone shows up in Carnival Barker style, whether it be a politician or a policy person that steps up with the here's a magic cure, kick their ass out, right? Do not <laughs> allow them to take up the stage any longer because they're full of them. Support people who have thoughtful planning and, hey, listen, this is the 10-year plan. We may get knocked off course and it may take 12 years. We may have a bunch of success and it may take five. But being supportive of those types of folks, being supportive of those voices, whether it be in social media or you know, making sure that they get their voice heard um, in the local papers, um, it, it's important. And I'm not saying shout down you know, those uh, folks that kind of have the carnival barker. But really, I mean, challenge them. Challenge those folks to make sure that people see that um, – 
you know, some of those carnival barkers are carnival barkers and, and you know, they, they need to not be taken seriously. They take serious the voices that are saying, you know, hey, listen, like, this is the hard way, this is the way it's got to be done, and, and here are the steps. Be supportive of that. Echo those ideas, share them with people, get people bought in to those good ideas, uh, get people bought into those visions. And I think, you know, that, that just necessarily naturally finds its way into campaigns. So you have a policy person that's standing up and saying, hey, listen, this is how we do it with the police. We take this step, this step. We increase character by doing this and this. We increase, you know, the, the pay per officer. We reduce, you know, the spending on tanks and, you know, crazy-ass breach stuff. And, you know, we yeah. make sure that we're not we're not doing those type of things anymore. Um, support those people. Vote for them, you know, work on their campaigns. You know, people that adopt good ideas should be... Um, giving them praise you know we do we do a bad job you know you have cancel culture but you know it's two ways you you need to you know address the bad ideas expose how they're bad but then also you know hold up people that are doing the right thing even if they're only 80 percent there even if it's a party that you know someone who's part of the party you don't agree with you know i'm I'm always happy to say like listen this democrat is a really good idea you know there's three things in there that are totally no go for me but if we start walking down this path and talking about it we actually may get something um, that's really important to do, to praise good ideas and make sure to call out the bad ones, not necessarily shout them down. But yeah. that's the idea of the marketplace for ideas, right? And if we do a better job of encouraging our politicians to adopt those hard road good ideas, they're going to be heartened and say, listen, I may not finish this in my first two years, but I did what the people wanted me to do. The people want the thoughtful path. They don't want the, the easy path. They want the real good thing. We're going to see more of that. And again, hey, listen, as, as in regards to changing the world and a strategy, that is not a quick fix strategy. That is a hard road strategy. So even in the strategy to implement hard road strategies, I'm asking you to take the hard road. <laughs> yeah. That, and that hard road is really thinking through the process, writing that thoughtful process out. You said that. Um, and really just getting the information out there and inviting conversation, right? Because, uh, you know, there's, this is the last thing I'll say. Um, I see a lot of censorship going on in a lot of the social media platforms. Like YouTube is immediately taking down anything that doesn't agree with CDC when it comes to the COVID-19. And there's a part of me that sees that and thinks that this is exactly what we were not supposed to do when we founded the, founded this country in the beginning. You know, if that's a bad idea, engage in it and tell them why it's a bad idea. Right. You know, respond instead of react. And, you know, I, I just, I don't know. Do you, do you think there's merit to that? Absolutely. I believe in the marketplace for ideas. Bad ideas will die their, under their own weight if we give them enough time to sit there and be thought over and ask people to justify it. And good ideas will survive and thrive. So, you know, whether it's racism, whether it's, you know, any any piece of a bad idea, let it out there. Don't shout it down. It'll It'll die under its own weight. If you try to repress it, the, the people that you know, propagate that idea will point to that and say, see, I'm so right, they have to you know, cancel me out, shout me down. And that's the most dangerous thing. Let, let these bad ideas die under their own weight. That's good. That's good. Well, JJ, are you running against anybody for the second district? Uh, I don't know. I mean, so I, I'm up in 2022. Um, we'll oh, really? for your I'm, term? Yeah, yeah, oh, I'm, nice. I'm pretty. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'll, I'll face uh, someone in the in the primary and someone uh, in the general. But I have every confidence I'll be able to 
stay here. I think I'm, I'm doing an okay job. Yeah, we, I, honestly, I, uh, just from the little bits of information that, I, that I've been able to gather since uh, we introduced this idea of doing this, uh, it does actually seem like you and your fellow commissioners and even Judge Clay are doing a really, really good job uh, considering the circumstances that we're under. Right, this is a heavy burden. So, uh, Commissioner Koch, thank you. Um, is there anywhere that the people can go to uh, contact you in one way or another if they have one of those well thought out processes? Sure, uh, even if it's half baked. Uh, even okay. if it's half baked, well, we're not yeah, going to turn it down. Right, so uh, you can shoot me an email at jj.koch at dallascounty.org, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. That's awesome. How many emails do you usually see a day? <laughs> uh, well, by the time it gets to 10 o'clock, I've probably seen at least 40, and by the end of the day, well over 150. That's good to know, but you do your best to, to field them all, right? Do the best again. Yeah. All right. Well, Commissioner Koch, that's it, man. We're uh, pretty much at the end. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Thanks. Thank you. You too.